Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that thou shalt go before us, and that in this hour thine Spirit shall take the word to many hearts, and use it to thy glory, as we see the darkening age round about us, and men's hearts failing them for fear. May thy people look up to thee with steadfast hope and expectation. Hear us, we pray thee, our God. In this hour we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We come now in our studies in the book of Revelation to the end of the 13th chapter, where there is one of the most famous passages in the Bible and one that has caused the most discussion. Now, the worship of the devil incarnate in Antichrist is the object of the work of the false prophet. The evil heart of man is revealed in all of this in a startling way. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead. This was the basis of the worship that is offered to him. The cry of the heavenly host was of the worth of the lamb that was slain, worthy as the lamb that was slain. But in spite of all the many infallible proofs of his death and resurrection, the world will not receive Jesus Christ. Yet here we have the Antichrist coming in his own name, who passes through some experiences of being wounded with a deadly wound and yet living. And the human race immediately goes after him, ready to worship him and acknowledge him as the rightful God. The image of the Antichrist is set up, probably in the Holy of Holies of the Temple in Jerusalem. And the fact constitutes what Christ called the abomination of desolation when he quoted Daniel the prophet. Cease has an excellent comment upon this image worship of the future. It's not difficult to trace what sort of arguments will be brought to bear for the making of this image. In the ages of great worldly glory and dominion, statues were raised to the honor of the great of every class. But who of all the great ones of the earth is so great as the Antichrist? Statues have ever been common for the commemoration of great events. But what greater event and marvel has ever occurred than that in the history of this man, in that he was wounded to death? and yet is restored to life and activity with far sublimer qualities than he possessed in his first life. How much more worthy of memorialization this than the scar of Scipio, or the appearance of a star supposed to be a miraculous, which Octavianus commemorated on the consecrated image of his imperial foster father. Well, if the grand old Romans thus honored their human emperors and benefactors, why withhold this veneration from one so evidently and eminently superhuman? And who will there be among the proud sons of earth to stand out against such arguments? The leaders of the apostate world will cheerfully acquiesce in the preeminent propriety of such a memorial, and an image of the beast, and to his sacred honor, is made and set up, particularly emphasizing his great characteristic that he once was wounded to the death, and that he has come back to life again with his death wound healed. It is written of the idols of the heathen that they are silver and gold. They have mouths, but they speak not. The satanic powers are now permitted to give a living quality to this devilish image. 
And we must not forget that it is written, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. And it is the false prophet who shall do that very thing. And before we're through with our studies, we shall see that he is cast into the lake of fire, along with the Antichrist. The intolerance of Satan now reaches its peak. Power is in his hand. He uses it against all who will not acknowledge him and worship him. Thus, in the name of democracy and popular rights, comes absolute dictatorship and imperialism. In the name of freedom comes complete and universal enslavement. In the name of the better reason, which tramples on religion and revelation, comes a great consolidated system of gross idolatry. In the name of charitable liberalism, which disdains allegiance to any creed, comes a bloody despotism, which compels men to worship the base image of a baser man or die. Here is one star in the crown of this world's boasted progress. And that's why we are all of us, or should be, so at enmity against anything in our democracy that puts down the freedom of man, that wants to, whether by star chamber inquisition or whether by investigation run riot, saps at the rights of man for our liberties are all bound together. Now it's the purpose of the false prophet to bring every human being under this bondage of Satan, and to this end a monstrous procedure is followed. All people within the dominion of the Antichrist are forced to accept an outward and visible mark of their allegiance to this satanic power. The named are seven, the all at the beginning and then the three pairs, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the bond. Some commentators have spoken of this mark as a brand, and have explained it as referring to the common practice of branding slaves. But John, in this book of the Apocalypse, never refers to heathen practices. He always takes us back to the Old Testament scriptures. We are not wanting for a reference to explain this matter perfectly. In the book of Deuteronomy, God gave the summary of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now these words became the very center of the thought of that ancient people. And even today, the Jews repeat the first half of this summary as an oft-recurring chant in their services. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Lord. Through Moses, at the time of the giving of this summary, God gave definite commands concerning these truths in their most literal form. And these words, we read from Deuteronomy, these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. You shall not go after other gods. Now very probably this practice will be reestablished during the time of the rise of the Antichrist. Will the 144,000 witnesses who go forth for God during this time wear such phylacteries? 
We do not know. It certainly is possible. If so, it can readily be understood that the fanaticism of the followers of the Antichrist would lead them to give themselves a similar mark, denoting that they are utterly given over to the service of the Antichrist. In the Bible, the right hand is the symbol of strength. The forehead is the most conspicuous part of the body. So to bear the mark of the beast in those parts of the body is to confess oneself utterly given over to the service of the Antichrist. The strength and allegiance of body and mind are thus marked as belonging to the beast. The Greek word for the mark is not one of the common classical words for a brand, puros and stigma, which were used to describe the branding of cattle and of slaves, but it's quite another word in Greek, karagma, which is used in the scriptures in only one place outside the book of Revelation, and in that place it describes the idols of the heathen. Paul on Mars Hill told the Athenians that they should not think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. The word translated graven is the same Greek word that we find as mark in the passage that we are studying. It should be pointed out also that the Greek here is quite different from the idea given in the English as to the application of this mark of the beast. Our versions might lead us to think that the mark was forced upon unwilling men. But the original Greek is that the false prophet causes all that they should give themselves a mark. The picture that we see behind these words is that of masses of people cutting or burning the mark upon themselves or eagerly pressing forward to receive it at the place of worship. The immediate effect of this wholesale marking of the population is the boycott upon all those who would stand out for God. There's no possibility of buying or selling, and this would cause starvation to those who refused to give in. Those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast will find themselves unable to buy, but nevertheless they'll find themselves more than conquerors through Christ. For let's never forget it that famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword will never be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so the people will flock to their eternal doom and receive with gladness the brand, the mark, which will ultimately brand them for the lake of fire. For out of heaven we shall hear very distinctly in the next chapter of this prophecy God's word saying, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Now, just what is the character of this mark which people place upon their hands and their foreheads? The scriptural statement is very simple, but it has probably given rise to more conjecture than any other single verse in the whole Bible. We read, Here is wisdom. He that understands, let him calculate the number of the wild beast, for it is a man's number, and the number of him is six hundred and sixty-six.
Now, devout men and curious men have sought the answer to this symbol and have ranged over the whole of the field of history and speculative imagination to find it. There have been many attempts to identify the number with historical personages. This is done by gematria. It should be understood that the letters of the alphabet were used for numbers in the ancient languages and that the use of numerals distinct from letters is a comparatively recent achievement in man's progress. We're all familiar with the Latin inscriptions on public buildings in our own cities, and the dates are carved in what we know as Roman numerals. But they are letters in our alphabet. Almost every schoolboy is able to translate M-D-C-C-C-L-X-X-V-I into our Arabic numerals, 1876. The same system of letters for numerals existed in Hebrew and Greek as well as in Latin. Two English authors who published an anonymous book on the subject claim that the same system held good in Sanskrit and other ancient languages. It can readily be seen, therefore, that every word containing the letters that were used as numbers would also have a numerical value. The last work mentioned even cites Groves in his book Echoes from Egypt as holding that many of the heathen gods had names whose number value is 666, as, for example, Amenoph and Baal Zephon. Interested students will also find an analogy from the sun worshippers, in the Encyclopedia Britannica under the word Abraxas. Now, since the passage we're studying in the Bible speaks of the number of beasts as being the number of his name and gives it as 666, there would appear to be an apparent justification for such identification, if a name can be found of which the numerical value of the letters totals 666, it might be thought proof positive that the identification had been established beyond all doubt. But such is not the case, as we shall see. The early fathers were almost unanimous in the opinion that the passage referred to Nero. It's true that the numerical value of the Hebrew form of the words Nero Caesar totaled 666. It's also true that the Greek form of the words for the Roman Empire... Hey, Latine Basiliae adds up to 666. When the Reformation came to pass, both Protestants and Catholics sought every bad name that they could find to call each other, and there were Protestants who were very eager to use every arm they could against their enemies, and it was not long before they called him the Antichrist, and efforts were made to associate the names of individuals with the number of the Antichrist. It's common knowledge that the numerical value of the inscription on the papal crown, Vicarius Fili Dei, the vicar of the Son of God, also adds up to 666. Some scholars have put forward the Greek word Titan, which totals 666 and which is a form of the name of the Emperor Titus. One of the most ingenious explanations comes from a French scholar, Bruston. I translate from his work as follows. The name of an emperor, that of the founder of an empire, can easily personify that empire. It's clear that if the name of Caesar in Greek or in Hebrew gave the desired result, that is 666, the problem would be resolved. But this is not the case. 
what then must we do? Let us consider the fact that in order to personify the empire that is spoken of in the Apocalypse, that of Babylon the Great, we must not look for a Roman name, but that for, for that of a Babylonian. The Roman Empire, says Brewstone, is to Julius Caesar, as that of Babylon is to the founder of the Empire of Babylon, who was, according to Genesis 10.8, Nimrod, the Hebrew form of the words Nimrod, son of Cush, Nimrod ben Cush, gives us the total of 666. Well, there have been many other attempts to discover the identity of the Antichrist on these principles, and some of them have been pretty sad attempts. Men have twisted the spelling of names and distorted grammar in order to get a result. One man discovered, if you want to call it a discovery, the fact that if you add the letters T-I to the name of the great emperor of the French, Napoleonti, upon the basis of Greek numerical values, would give 666. Now this is, of course, more than senseless. One further modern interpretation has been made which shows that the practice is not yet ended. Throughout Italy in the 1930s, there were thousands of signs to be seen painted on walls and monuments, reading in Italian, Long Live Mussolini. Now the Italian word for the first part of the phrase is Viva. Almost universally, the vowels are omitted. I myself have seen the interlocked letters looking almost like a W, painted on the marble of the posts along the enclosure at Pisa, where the famous tower leans. VV in Duce was painted on every one of the marble posts and scrawled on the tower itself after the fashion of those who scribble their names in public places. My own mind would never lean toward gematria, and so I did not see that which another mind has found in those letters. For if you leave out the E and you count the U as a V, you find in Long Live Il Duce, VV Il Duce, you find 666. Well, we can leave all of these speculations, every one of them. Let us return to the Word of God. At the close of the revelation concerning the first beast who rose out of the earth, we read, Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And now we read, Here is wisdom. Patience is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, and wisdom is a definite gift of God. In order to have it, we must first admit that we do not have it by any natural attainment, and then we must ask for it. It says in James 1.5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Now, you'll notice that the first requisite of having wisdom is not asking for it, but knowing that you lack it. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. How wonderful it is when we come to the place where we say, Lord God, of myself I know nothing. Give me the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Daniel, there's a phrase that says that at the end time the wise shall understand. And one man has said, the wise and they that understand are in Hebrew the same word, the masculine and remind us again of certain psalms that are called masculine psalms, an important series of psalms in this connection, four of which describe the wicked one of the time and his following, while the 32nd psalm speaks of forgiveness and a hiding place in God. And the 42nd comforts those who are cast out from the sanctuary, and the 45th celebrates the victory of Messiah and his reign and the submission of the nations. 
Then in the 74th Psalm, there is a pleading for the violated sanctuary. And the 78th recites the many wanderings of the people from their God. The next Psalm is another mourning over the desolation of Jerusalem. Psalm 88 bewails their condition under the broken law. And Psalm 89 declares the sure mercies of David. Psalm 142 is the only other masculine psalm. The mere recital of them in this way may convince us that they furnish the very keynote to Israel's condition in the time of the end and may well be used to give such instruction to the remnant amid the awful scenes of the great tribulation. Now in Revelation it will not be doubtful, I think, to those who attempt to consider it, that we have in this place a... Nota bene for the masculine. Look well. These psalms are very definitely for the wise. Now, all of these interpretations have been given. We've quoted typical examples. And Cease says of them, the endless guesses and experiments with which expositors have occupied themselves and their readers on this point can be of very little practical worth to us. When the monster comes, the righteous shall understand. Our business is rather to reckon up the number of the beast as to his moral identification. It is here that the chief stress falls and where the greatest exposure lies. The wisdom here, as required by us, is the wisdom to detect and discern the antichristian badness, the ill principles which lay men open to antichrist's power, the subtle atheism and unfaith by which people are betrayed into his hands. Now, I'd like to point out that the remarkable fact that the numerical value of the ordinary Greek form of the name of Jesus is 888. If you write Jesus in Greek and give the numerical value to each of the letters and add them up, you'll discover the total is 888. Now, this number, we will see, is indeed the number of perfection for eight is the number of new beginnings. It is the perfection of the octave. The children of the great composer Bach found that the easiest method of awakening their father was to play a few lines of music and leave off the last note. The, the musician would rise immediately and go to his piano and strike the final chord. I awoke early one morning and I went to the piano in our home and played the well-known carol Silent Night. I purposely stopped just before playing the last note. I walked out into the hallway and listened to the sounds that came from upstairs. An eight-year-old boy had stopped his reading and was trying to sound the final note on his harmonica. Another child was singing the last note lustily. An adult called down, Did you do that purposely? What's the matter? You see, our very nature demands the completion of the octave. And the whole universe cries out for the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. The groaning of the earth, travailing in pain, is awaiting his manifestation. There shall arise upon this earth a being who shall claim to satisfy the desires of the nations. But when he plays his tune, it will be without any final chord. The name of Jesus adds up to all perfection. But the name of the Antichrist is the perfect symbol of imperfection and incompleteness. Cease ends the paragraph, part of which we've quoted, with these words. Six is the bad number, and when multiplied by tens and hundreds, 
It denotes evil in its greatest intensity and most disastrous manifestation. This number of the beast's name thus gives his standing in the estimate of heaven and fixes attention on that rather than on the numerical spelling of the name he bears on earth. If we can only know the principles pertaining to his badness, if we can only have understanding to detect his spirit, which already works so powerfully in so many specious forms about us, we shall have accomplished the most useful reckoning of the number of his name. And without this, we may be carrying his damning mark upon our souls, even while we think ourselves forearmed against his power by what we have discovered of the word by which his contemporaries designate him. The moral insight into his nature is the wisdom we require, rather than the spelling of the name by which he's called. In this, therefore, let us try to skill our souls, cleaving ever to our only Lord God and his Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, in the meekness of a confiding faith and obedience, so that no marks or stains of the beast or his abominations, even in spirit, may ever be found upon our souls. So we conclude that it is impossible to connect the number of the beast with any historical figure of the past, but that it will perfectly delineate the Antichrist, a historical figure of the future, that those believers who live in his time will read this passage, now unknown to us, as clearly as we read the 22nd Psalm, which was unknown to these of David's time. The first beast is the future Roman dictator who shall become the Antichrist by the incarnation of Satan. The second is the personal head of the religious system which will go along with the dictatorship and the Antichrist. But we who are in Christ know well that he will keep us from the tribulations that shall come upon this world. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall bless this truth to every listening heart and use it to thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for the revelation of thy truth and for the wonderful way thou dost exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in the word of God and through it in our hearts and lives. May the word come to us in freshness and richness in this hour, that we may grow in the knowledge of thy truth. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I am going to read my own translation of the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. And I looked, and behold the Lamb standing upon Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his name and his father's name written upon their foreheads. And I heard a voice from out of heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunder. And the accompanying sound which I heard was as the sound of harpists harping with their harps. And they sang a new song in the presence of the throne, and in the presence of the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the hundred and forty-four thousand which had been purchased from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. 
These were purchased from among men to be first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was not found the lie, for they are without blemish. Doubt looks at circumstances, and faith looks to Christ. The preceding chapter, speaking of the satanic trinity, ends with the earth in rebellion. Satan, the anti-God, the living creature out of the sea, the anti-Christ, and the living creature out of the earth, the unholy spirit, the false prophet, are all seen together in mightiest conflict against God. But just here the beloved disciple is given another vision, and he looks through all of earth's misery and sees the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned. He has been listening to earth's groanings, but now the groaning is drowned by the songs of the redeemed. The Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the best-known symbols of the Scripture. He is here seen standing upon Mount Zion. The careful study of this symbol gives us a rich reward. The first mention of any word or place is generally very important, and it's especially so in this instance. David and his army came up to Jerusalem where the Jebusites were in control. The incident is found in 2 Samuel 5. It's necessary to revise the translation in order to catch the full meaning of the scorn of the enemy and the victory of David. The king marched, we read, the king marched with his men against the Jebusites in Jerusalem, for they were the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, Thou shalt not enter here, for even the blind and the lame shall repulse you, which really meant, David shall not enter here. But David captured the fortress in the citadel and called it the city of David. And from this time on, Mount Zion was connected with David and associated with his name. But David's choice of this place is not that which gives it its importance. We read in the Psalms, The Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. These are the key passages with reference to Mount Zion, but that there is much more truth connected with this place will appear as we develop the passages which speak of Mount Zion. There can be no doubt that God has definitely stated that he has chosen Mount Zion for the emplacement of the throne of the Messiah during the kingdom age when he shall rule in righteousness. The verse we are studying in Revelation is the only mention of this place which is to be found in this book, but it opens the door to a line of teaching which must not be disregarded. Just as the vision of the risen Christ in the first chapter brought together various passages throughout the Old Testament which reveal to us that the risen Christ is none other than the Jehovah of the Old Testament, so the mention of Mount Zion at this particular point takes us back through the corridors of prophecy, linking scores of passages of divine truth with the incidents that now lie in the path of our study. The spiritual import of this verse is that the moment of God's triumph is now at hand. 
When we consider this verse with the one that proceeds, the thought is as follows. The whole earth seems to be going after the Antichrist. The false prophet is leading multitudes to his worship, and with signs and lying wonders is causing almost the whole earth to go after him. But his number is a number of incompleteness. For if you look closely, you will see that in spite of the raging of the people and the vain imaginings of the nations, God says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The kingdom which has so long been awaited is now to begin. The bitterest judgments are about to fall, but look up. The lamb is taking his proper place in heaven, and he will soon come forth to take it on earth. Mount Zion is to be found in scores of passages in the scripture, and it would be well for us to consider the more important of these. First, let us consider the Psalms. In the second Psalm, we see the nations in tumult, with the princes of earth in rebellion against the Lord's Messiah. The eternal decree is declared, yet I have set my king upon the hill of my sanctuary in Zion. In further Psalms, we will see that the throne and the sanctuary are linked in this connection. It must not be forgotten that Messiah is not only God's king, but also God's priest. Christ is God's priest after the order of Melchizedek. The millennial reign shall be a reign of peace and righteousness enforced by God's king and directed by God's priest, all the Lord Jesus Christ. Mount Zion shall be the place of his throne, and his priestly ministrations shall be performed in the sanctuary. In the ninth psalm, the Lord is presented as the Most High, which is his title as the Possessor of heaven and earth. He is shown as rebuking the nations and destroying the wicked, that is, the wicked one, the Antichrist. Just as we are about to see him do in the chapters of Revelation that now lie before us, songs of praise rise to the one who is seated upon Mount Zion. We shall return to these songs when we consider the music of this chapter. The righteous remnant of Israel is seen in the 20th Psalm. And it is more than likely that there is a reference here to the 144,000 and the other believers whom they symbolize. It is a day of trouble. And the Lord alone can deliver. The cry goes forth, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. It is the Lord once more as priest and king delivering his people. No wonder they cry, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In Psalm 48, we find the kings of the earth gathered together. This is certainly symbolical, if not prophetic, of the gathering of the kings at Armageddon. Why are they troubled? Why do they fall? Why are they seized as a woman in travail? Once more we find that it is the appearance of the Lord in Zion. It then becomes beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, Zion the city of the great king. In Psalm 51, this is the one that comes from the heart of David after his adultery and murder upon his return to the Lord. 
It is prophetic of the time when Israel as a whole nation, after her spiritual adultery, in going aside after strange gods, shall return to the one whom she has pierced, and call upon him for purging with the hyssop. God will not despise the broken spirit, the broken and the contrite heart, but he will do his good pleasure unto Zion, building the walls of Jerusalem. Now we know from the New Testament that this takes place after the completion of the church age, as we read in the 15th chapter of Acts. Then again in the 74th Psalm, there is another of the double pictures so frequent throughout the prophetic word. An event that took place or a situation that existed in the time of the writer becomes like a stereopticon slide through which light may be passed to reveal a similar image on a much larger scale down in the future. Here there is sorrow over the desolations which an enemy has committed in the sanctuary. The people cry, Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old. This Mount Zion wherein thou hast dwelt. But what a picture of the greater desolations, the abomination of desolations, and the corresponding cry of God's people for the deliverance that must come to Zion because of the promise of God. If we look at the third verse of Revelation 14, we will see that the singers are like those in the Psalms, purchased of old. The 76th Psalm is another picture of the Lord on Mount Zion bringing peace and joy after the battle. It describes this moment when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, cutting off the pride of princes, being terrible to the kings of the earth. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Note once more the priesthood and the kingship of our Lord together. The 78th Psalm is one of the recitals of the history of the children of Israel. From Egypt the story follows them through all of their wanderings, far from him, down to the David who prefigures the greater David, the Lord Jesus. Three times in this psalm the Lord is called the Most High. And after the long descriptions of captivity and punishment, we have the Lord appearing in Zion. Then the Lord awakened as one out of sleep, and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine, and he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. He put them to a perpetual reproach. He chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. In the 84th Psalm, we find the pilgrim walk of the Lord's people. The miracle of his strengthening is shown. The line, which in our version is translated, they go from strength to strength, is beautifully rendered in the French. Their strength increases during the march. And the blessed man of verse 5 is the one who is manifested before God in Zion. So shall God deal with the remnant in the day that the nation shall be born. In Psalm 87, the Most High, as it is in the Hebrew, is the one who establishes Zion and who describes his love for her. It is a picture of the millennial city. Again in Psalm 102, the great tribulation is in view. This is another of the double psalms, for it is a partial description of the suffering of Christ on the cross, but also a description of the suffering of Israel in the time of Jacob's trouble. We read in Psalm 102, verse 13, 
Thou shalt rise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. It is a set time. After all that we have shown of the various psalms which precede the 110th, it is almost superfluous to add a word. Here we find the moment of Christ's reign. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek comes to reign. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Here again is Armageddon. Psalm 125 speaks of the unchanging steadfastness of those who put their trust in the Lord. They shall be like Mount Zion. There shall be a separation between the evildoer and the righteous, and peace shall be upon Israel. Psalm 132 is God's fulfillment of his oath to David. The Lord hath sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. Now where shall this be? The Lord has chosen Zion for this purpose. And the enthronement of Christ will bring righteousness to God's priests and joy to all his saints. The whole psalm is a direct commentary upon the events of our text in Revelation. Psalm 133 sees Judah and Israel united. Hermon in the north and Zion in the south are encompassed by the same dew from God. All strife and divisions are past. The anointing oil which set apart God's high priest flows over all his people, and they are a kingdom of priests before him. That blessing unspeakable is commanded in Zion when he is manifested. In Psalm 137, we find how inseparably God has linked his people to his land. They cannot sing the songs of Zion when they are out of his will. But the implication is that the confusion of the world, Babylon, in which Israel has been scattered, shall be brought to an end. It is announced prophetically that Babylon is to be destroyed, and the same announcement appears in fulfillment in our passage in Revelation 14.8, as soon as the Lamb appears in Zion. In Psalm 146, we see Israel once more in the midst of the Great Tribulation. There is a warning Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man. The princes we know, they are the rulers who take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But who is this Son of Man against whom they are warned? Is he not the one of whom Christ warned when he said, I am come in my Father's name and ye received me not? If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. In the time of Jacob's trouble, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, for the God of Zion shall come to reign. And this is what will turn the way of the wicked one upside down. The last of the Zion Psalms is the 149th. The king is now on the throne. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. In the psalm that is next to the beginning, the nations are in tumult, and the people are filled with vain imaginings. In this psalm which is next to the end, worship is in the mouth of God's people, and his word is in their hand. The result is that there is vengeance upon the nations, punishments upon the people. 
In that second psalm, the kings and the rulers are in rebellion. Here we read, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. The picture is complete. I must testify personally that no study in this book brought more personal joy than this realization that from the single word Zion in Revelation 14.1, it was possible to go back through 30 different psalms and find that each of them fits into the book of Revelation at this point and sheds its light upon the great vision of the end. Is this chance? Is this coincidence? The very laws of mathematics cry out against such a possibility. This is God's word. The whole of the Zion Psalms are summarized by a passage in Isaiah. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the law from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The same prophecy is repeated in almost identical terms in the book of Micah. Now with the Lamb on Mount Zion are seen the 144,000. We've already studied in detail the significance of this company. Just before the final bowls of judgment are poured upon the earth, the Lord stops to reassure his own that he is already taking the place of government and that his own are safe in him. They have refused the name and the mark of Antichrist upon their foreheads. He has written his name and his father's name upon their foreheads. It is to be noted that the Greek text speaks of the names of both the father and the son. We remember that in the upper room the Lord said to his disciples, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Here we see that the Son and the Father have placed their name upon the foreheads of those in whom they dwell. John, who has been given the vision of the approaching kingdom with the Lamb reigning and his blessed people with him, now hears the first strains of the heavenly song and the accompanying glory of the divine eternal symphonies. Beethoven wrote nine symphonies, and when Brahms composed his first symphony, there were those who saw it as a completion of the work of the former master, and who called it the tenth symphony. And here in Revelation we catch through John the faint echo of the completion of all of earth's praise and the beginning of the eternal song. Under all the laws of interpretation which we have been following, we must look upon this company of 144,000 as the same group which we have studied in some detail in chapter 7. While it may be true that they include a multitude which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, 
since these were associated with them in the former description, we have no right to speak of them as the church. It is to be noted that this group is composed of those who are learning the new song. The singers are already in heaven. Another definite proof that the church is caught away before the tribulation period begins. Only the redeemed can sing the song. The redeemed of this age are singing the song in heaven as we come back with the Lamb to Mount Zion. Here the saints of the tribulation period join in the chorus. They too were purchased by his blood so they can sing the songs of redemption. They are presented to us as being free from the satanic defilements which accompanied the worship of the image of the Antichrist. In the Middle Ages there were those that took this passage as a condemnation of marriage and as a support of the doctrine of celibacy. But it is outrageous to take this passage as such a condemnation of marriage or as such a support of the doctrine of celibacy. Even one of the greatest Roman Catholic commentators, the Abbe Crompon, takes this point of view and we read there, the woman with which these were not defiled are those impious doctrines and that guilty lasciviousness symbolized in the apocalypse itself by Jezebel and the great whore. The virgins represent here all those purified souls which, taken together, form the mystic body of the church, the Lamb's wife. It is in this same sense that St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We would change that only in one way. The virgins here represent the 144,000, where we might say to the royal bodyguard of a reigning monarch, We've seen that they are to be the instruments for the salvation of a great multitude which no man can number. They themselves are called the first fruits of this harvest which is gathered in the rebel province of the great enemy of souls at the time of his greatest wrath. They are trophies of the last great phase of the fighting in the invisible warfare in the spiritual realm. While the Antichrist is about his work, he is given the ability to work with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It is important that we note that a particular lie is spoken of, the lie. We are now told that the 144,000 who have been called out while the lie has been having its great circulation, are found to have mouths that are free from this lie. Here also, these first fruits of the tribulation period are seen in all the unblemished glory of their imputed righteousness in Christ. Like the three who came through the fiery furnace without even the smell of fire, so they have known the breath of Satan in its last and most violent gasps, and yet they stand in the sight of God without blemish. Oh, the grace of God! Oh, the wonder of his revelation! The Lord willing, you shall continue this study in our next meeting together. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bless it to the heart of all who listen, and use it to the praise of thy glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.